Well, good morning too. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm always reluctant to thank people because, um, because it's kind of, it's something about Christ that we're working with and it's not for us, it's for the cause of Christ. And just, uh, I don't know if Paul's going to pursue this with us, but the, just a reminder that the impact for church planning that coaching has is quite profound. There's some statistics which Archie probably has at his fingertips, but it's two and a half times the success a church plant gains by having a mentor or a coach work with them. You heard this? Yeah, the, the PCA in the United States is five times. Five times. Now right. that's, that's their analysis, it might be two and a half. Generally. Yeah. And that's, um, so it's our, our great passion, I'm sure it's yours as well, to see new churches flourish all over the country. And there is something happening. There is, God is doing something. Uh, if we can be part of facilitating that happen in a more powerful way through our mentoring, coaching work, that is really, really powerful, really, really beneficial. So we're keen to see that happen and keep pushing forward with it. Yeah. Now, the, the guys asked me to, to lead us in Bible study, and uh, it's always one of those um, kind of daunting things with a bunch of guys who probably know more than me about the scriptures. So I'm going to take you through some passages in the next two days and hopefully just facilitate some discussion as well um, and here's here's the quick powerful introduction uh, we've been going through John's gospel at our church and so I thought let's go through John's gospel here and so there's the there's the nature of why we're choosing this passage but as I've been looking at it it's been uh, really very very relevant so we're gonna look at John chapter 12 we've just started a new series going from John chapter 12 through to 17. We did the first chunk of John uh, last year sometime, and so we'll be going through that. But actually, just in terms of a little bit more on that, I, I would say what I want to get to is that this is a passage that really does shape our ministry aspirations. And so it, it really is very helpful for us in ministry to be looking at it together. So how about we go through it? I'll read. We're going to be looking at... Um, John 12, uh, verse 20. Let's have a, I'll read through there and we'll look at it. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now is my heart troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. 
He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what we heard, what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, this is, uh, as you know, the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, everything's, everything's hotting up. And it's an extraordinary passage full of all kinds of allusions and echoes back into the Old Testament and, and two quotes, obviously. And I, for mine, one of the steps into it is uh, verse 41. And, uh, and I'm, I, there is some controversy about this, but I figure you can throw out your thoughts if you disagree. But Isaiah 41, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, I think the NIV has because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. Now, the Greek actually, it's Jesus isn't there. It's the word is his. Uh, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And so the question, of course, is who is the his? And the NIV plugs for it being Jesus. But who is the his? And Carson suggests, and I, I like it, he, he suggests that one of the options you can go with, which makes sense of many things, is that he saw uh, Isaiah said these things. What are these things? Well, it's the quote from verse 40, Isaiah 6. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Do you remember Isaiah 6, that great passage about um, Isaiah seeing the Lord seated on high, raised up the temple being filled and the holy, holy, holy is the Lord, the doorposts shaking and so on, that great picture of God in all his glory and uh, Isaiah falling down, woe is me, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a man, people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord and so on. Um, the extraordinary passage which then comes to his commissioning where Jesus, uh, where God then commissions him to go and speak to the people that they might uh, be hardened, they might never they might never see, might never understand. Um, and Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Um, and is it that he saw, is it when he was looking in the temple, he saw Jesus in some pre-incarnate form? There's one option. He saw Jesus' glory in the temple. 
Or is it rather that he saw, he saw the Lord exalted, raised up on high, lifted up, and in seeing the Lord and all that followed, he said these things about the hardening that was to come because he saw Jesus' glory. He saw the glory of God, Jesus. Um, and I like that way. Um, it makes best sense of the, the Greek of chapter 12, verse 41, and it makes best sense of all kinds of allusions that run through the passage, yes? And so you've got the two quotes. You've got uh, verse 38 quotes Isaiah 53, verse 1, um, which comes in the context of Isaiah 52, where you've got just prior to it, you've got the passage about being lifted up on high, exalted, um, and then the nations being spoken of, and then Isaiah 53:1, introducing the suffering servant. So you've got the suffering servant passage <laughs> quoted in verse 38, and then you've got Isaiah 6, the glory of the Lord and the hardening of Israel uh, prior to the intention of God to bring the gospel to the nations. And Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory of God, Jesus, the suffering servant. Yes, the suffering servant who would be exalted, lifted up on high, who would transition from the hardening of Israel such that the gospel bounces out from them to the nations, to the Gentiles. Which then makes sense of verse 20, which is the great trigger for Jesus in his ministry. Why, why does the Greeks come in? Why, why is it their coming that triggers Jesus to say, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified? Um, isn't it because he, Jesus now sees the hour is coming, the hour is coming, the hour is come. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man, the character out of Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember the character of Daniel chapter 7, the son of man who is um, who's brought, comes before the Ancient of Days and receives dominion, glory, power, authority over all nations for all time, forever. And Jesus says, with the Greeks coming now is the hour for the son of man, that man of Daniel 7, to be glorified. Because here are the nations now coming. Here are the nations now coming to the Messiah, to the son of man. Now is his hour. Now is his hour to come into that great glory because now is the hour of his death, which is what he immediately speaks about, doesn't he? So um, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And verse 24, immediately he talks about a grain of wheat falling to the earth and dying so that it bears much fruit and which later you find... Jesus is talking like this to speaking, speaking about being lifted up like the snake in the wilderness, John chapter 3. Being lifted up that he might draw all men to himself. That Satan might be judged. That judgment on the world might happen, verse 31. And now is the hour of his glorification in his death when judgment happens. And when he comes into his coronation, when he comes into his enthronement as the Son of Man in all glory. Because it's in that he breaks the power of sin, Satan and death to bring all men to God through forgiveness and salvation um, as the suffering servant. So I, kinda, I love this little picture of um, um, Isaiah sees God in all his glory, has a message of hardening on the Jews, and he says that because he sees the glory of the suffering servant, Jesus, who is to come. 
who will bring all the nations one day in through the hardening that comes to Israel. Let me bounce you into a, a, just some, some theological applications, I guess. There's um, uh, one of the wonderful things about this for me is, and I, I take it's intended, is the, is the wonderful insight into the character of God. So now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And in one sense, the nature of the language of glory you expect to be seeing in splendor and displays of power and kind of that uh, Mount Sinai, the kind of thunderstorm, the exciting. And of course, in Jesus's language, the Son of Man being glorified is seen in his suffering servant role, in the sacrificial death, in humility, in obedience to his father that wins the lost and so the son of man is glorified in his death which is a profound insight into the character of God that God's greatest glory is seen in him as the God of grace and truth so we have beheld his glory John chapter 1 uh, glory of the one and only come from the father full of grace and truth the, the Exodus 34, is it Exodus 34, where the, the Lord shows his glory to Moses and, um, and he declares, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious, compassionate one. And so here's the glory of God. It's seen in his sacrificial suffering service of others. And so our God is seen in his greatness in a way that you wouldn't expect. It's seen in humility. That is, that, that is a wonderful insight. And if there's any country on earth that ought to get that, it's Australians, isn't it? Um, the Gallipoli thing. I was talking to Al about this a couple of weeks ago. And um, uh, if there's one nation that knows what it is to glory in sacrifice, uh, it's the group of people who get together for Gallipoli celebrations every year, where we actually lost. Or had a strategic retreat, or whatever you want to call it. But uh, we got beaten, and yet we glory in it because of the what is it? The the, the determined sacrifice for others uh, in the face of all odds, prepared to lay down your life. Australians love that, the, rightly so. The hour uh, I've had to go, to, oh, I get to go to dawn services the last few years. My job get invited, etc. That hour of that dawn service is like nothing else that we do in this country. Yeah, it's almost so spiritual. Close. We're so close, and yeah. yet we, yeah, almost spiritual. Yeah, and we're talking. There was a there's that brother in arms. Has anyone seen the series Brother in Arms? Oh yeah. I've not either, but I've heard story. I've heard one, and you don't need to see it to know this, but because I've now got the videos, but I will watch it. There's one incident I'm told where uh, Al shares this, where there's a uh, um, the um, it's the show that follows a unit through the Second World War from the landing D-Day all the way through to the end, I understand. Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers. 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 What did I call them? Brothers and Arms. Brothers. Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers. Brothers and Arms is the The good song. <laughs> <laughs> it's the theme song for yeah, yeah, the, the show. Uh, Brothers in Arms. But there's, a, there's apparently an incident where the, the unit is in a trench and they're surrounded by the Germans. It's night time and they've got the, the, 
the, the armies, the enemies all around them. And as the day is sort of coming towards, the commanding officer of this unit realises they're surrounded effectively and come dawn, when the Germans realise that, they're just going to be torn to shreds and shot and, and it'll be all over. And so apparently, I'm told, at, when dawn arrives, he stands up in front of his troops, puts his bayonet on his rifle and says, we're going. Steps up over the trench and runs 200 metres uh, without any uh, cover towards the enemy. And, uh, and all the rest of the units just looking on, jaws dropped. That's a man they'd follow for the rest of their lives. And there's a sense of glory about it. Whether he won or lost, there's a sense of glory about it. And that's what you get here, the picture of Jesus as the suffering servant who lays down his life. That's what makes God glorious. That's what makes God glorious. And so I... For us, that, that is, it's a passage that's meant to humble us and bring us a real sense of awe at the character of God. Um, but it does do more than that because of verse 24. After Jesus talking about himself being glorified in his suffering role, he then says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He gives the principle, which is, in the spiritual realm, fruit doesn't come except through death. And then he says in verse 26, If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. And isn't he effectively saying glory in my kingdom is about suffering service to death and the principle in the spiritual realm is that through death you find life and if you're going to follow me in my kingdom then you've got to go the way I go. That is to find a harvest of souls for eternity will require you to die as well to bear much fruit well, I think that, I think he's utter, I think he's giving us a principle for ministry and here's the rub for us and I think it's like there's a whole bunch of reasons why this passage is so helpful for us one, one is that it gives us an insight into the character of God Isaiah sees his glory the glory of the suffering servant who will bring the gospel to the nations through his death. But the rub for us is the principle that applies to Jesus applies to us. That is, a harvest of spiritual life only comes through the leaders of the spiritual realm dying to self for the sake of the gospel. And for some that's literally the case. In some mission contexts, it will mean to lead God's people, you lead them by dying, laying down your life. But for us, at the moment anyway, uh, it's to lead God's people the way of Jesus is to lead as, as leaders who are determined to die to produce a harvest of life. And I've got a bunch of ways we die. <laughs> We die to the pay packet, all right? Um, 
As I talk to friends in the corporate world, uh, many of us could be earning two, three, four times as much as we are. But if you're going to produce a harvest of souls, you die to that. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, you learn not to think about it. Learn not to compare yourself. Um, you learn, therefore, to live with less than you might otherwise have had because you want to see souls won for eternity. So you die to the pay packet. You die to luxury, the luxury of time. Um, uh, I could have a far better marriage. <laughs> I could have a far better family life. But I, I sacrificed that to some degree for the sake of seeing a harvest of souls won for the kingdom. Because I could spend more time, you know, kind of ministries about spinning plates, where you, um, you know, the uh, kind of life is about trying to spin as many plates on the stick like the juggling act does. And, um, uh, and kind of the world around us is pursuing the balanced life where you've got, you've got everything in balance, spinning your plates just enough so that they're all spinning really well. And I, I think we're called to die to the balanced life. Because if I was just living this 70, 80 years, I'd give as much time as I could to spin my wife plate, you know, and make her really hum. Because a happy wife's a happy life, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I'd be really fine, and I'd be plowing into the kids, the plate and stuff. I'd be following all this. I'd be everywhere with them. But because there's a harvest of souls that need to be won for the kingdom, I don't spin that plate as much as I could. My kids are in sporting competitions this coming week and I can't go to all of them. Um, and that's a grief, but that's what you die to. You die to the stress-free life. You die to the life without worry. I'm always struck by Paul's language where he talks about, um, he carries around in him his concern or anxiety, is literally the Greek, his anxiety for all the churches. The man who wrote, don't be anxious about anything, <laughs> says he lives with the anxiety of the churches. And I would love to be on a sailing boat with a surfboard, just touring the world, with my wife plate. <laughs> and, um, but I spend my week constantly stressed. Now, I'm, I'm a Calvinist and I need to get over it, yeah? But Paul was too. Paul was a Calvinist? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Every Saturday night, I don't sleep well. I don't know what you guys are like, <coughs> but I, I don't sleep well as I'm... I've usually... My sermon's prepared, but I'm mulling over last thoughts. I'm anxious about uh, the people who are coming who may not be coming, about sending a message that changes lives, that, you know, that is all playing on my mind Saturday nights. I never sleep well. I now no longer sleep with my wife on Saturday nights because it ruins her night. And so... That's dying to self in some small way. You know, it's not like we're, you know, Jesus is... There's, 
we choose that because of the ministry we engage in, yeah? Um, we die to dumping. Everyone dumps on me, and my job is to not dump back. As a leader in God's kingdom to produce a harvest of righteousness, a harvest of fruit, uh, uh, lives for the kingdom, um, I, I die to dumping back. I... I become like a transformer. You know how you get, kind of get alternating current that comes into the transformer and it turns into direct current? That's us. And alternators, those transformers get really hot. That's me. I've got a dog now, so it's okay. I can kick the dog when I get home. But, uh, but you know, that, that, that's what you die to, the life of being able to just shoot back. And um, you absorb a lot of crap and you've got to take it and live with it. Um, find some way to deal with it but our task is to absorb that that the work of the gospel might go on in peace and harmony um, you, you die to reputation and prestige um, you, you don't minister to be well thought of you don't seek to be everyone's friend now, it doesn't mean there's no place for standing for your position at times, but you've got to determine when it's standing for a position that serves the cause of the gospel and the harvest of righteousness and not you. Now, that in itself is dying, because that's a really hard process to go through. Um, but I, I constantly feel the challenge of speaking a word week by week in church that will offend some. And I don't want to offend. I don't want to be known as the one who's the arrogant, narrow-minded, bigoted, whatever. But I'm not in it for me. I'm bound by Christ, and so I die to self to deliver the word that Christ's given me to deliver. Oh, you, we die to reputation and self in that we seek to raise up a generation of young guys beneath us who will take over from us and become more than we ever could have been. And, and so... In one sense, in our church, EV, I don't want it to be known as Andrew Hurt's church. I want it to be known as a whole crowd of young guys coming through who will take it over and I'll disappear. Surfing with my wife in a surfboard. You know, <laughs> but you die to self in giving it to others, giving them ministries, becoming less that others might become more, which is what we're about here as coaches. You know, it's, it's driven by a desire to raise up others that they might be everything we could never quite attain or they might impact others in a way we never could. Now, all, there's a whole, I don't know whether I did more than six there, but there's a whole bunch of things that um, come to mind. And in all of that, I, I guess partly what I want to say to us, I trust from the word, is that it's not really about beating us all up and saying you've got to die more, you've got to die more. Because I think we have, a, we have a heritage in our Christian world amongst Reformed evangelicals that is very good at that, I think. Um, I know, I know all the men that I've looked to in the generation before me have been extraordinary at it, and I'm constantly aware of my failure in comparison, and so I feel drawn onto that. I think most of us are drawn into that. If you're not, we need to keep pressing in that direction. But I guess I say it not just to keep pushing us down that path as if we need more of it, because I don't think we need more of it, but I say it for two reasons. Um, I say it 
so that you know the experiencing the experience you're feeling is actually normal so, so if you do feel like you're constantly dying and being gutted and welcome to the world of Jesus yeah but I say it also because that's the path to fruitfulness and we want to see a harvest of souls across the country and if we're going to do that we need to we need to raise a generation who will see that it means death death in this world for life in the one to come and we need to keep pursuing the life to come the harvest yeah and press on